Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour with me, David Kermode. It's the start of Series 8. And we're kicking off in style with one of the biggest names in drinks writing, Alice Lascelles, a columnist for the FT. Uh, She's won numerous awards and she's here to talk about her latest project, the Cocktail Edit. Plus, later on, we'll have some medal winners to maybe mix with. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Alice Lascelles has been writing about the drinks world for almost 20 years, a columnist for the Financial Times. She's a regular on TV and radio. Uh, She's a past winner of the prestigious Fortnum and Mason Drinks Writer of the Year Award and also the equally prestigious IWSC Spirits Communicator of the Year as well. Her latest project, Harnessing Her formidable communication skills to help us make cocktails at home, something that uh, really gathered momentum during the lockdowns of the pandemic era, of course. Uh, The book is called The Cocktail Edit, and I'm delighted to say that Alice is here now. Um, Alice, welcome to The Drinking Hour. Hi, David. Lovely to be here. It's lovely to have you. Um, Let's talk about you first before we get to uh, the new book. Um, How did you get into the world of writing about drinks? It wasn't really, there wasn't really a grand plan. Um, I actually worked in the arts for a few years after I left university in the theatre world, uh, but then decided to make the switch to journalism. And the first job I got was on um, the late, great Wine and Spirits International magazine. And uh, one week I was in my old job, I was franking post down a kind of fly tipping alley in Finsbury Park. And, you know, the next week I was working for a magazine that was sort of sending me all over the world to drink amazing cocktails and taste champagne and stuff like that. And I couldn't believe my luck. Yeah, from that moment I was hooked. (laughs) You're relatively unusual uh, in that you kind of divide your time uh, seemingly kind of quite equally between wine and spirits too. Yeah, that's right. So when I started out in the industry, I was working about wine and spirits, but then quite quickly specialised into spirits and cocktails, but have been moving back over to not just wine, but all drinks these days. And I think that's partly because of the way you know, consumers are changing and people are drinking much more broadly than they ever used to. You know, you used to be a whiskey drinker or a gin drinker or a wine person. And these days people are hopping around between all the different categories. And I think if you want to have, if you're writing for consumers and you want to have a sort of a sort of insightful perspective on drinks, I think you need to be aware of what's going on in lots of different categories. 
rather than just one. Yeah, I, I think they meld together beautifully. You know, I suppose vermouth is a, a good example of something that sort of sits between different disciplines. So it makes a, a lot of sense. You've had a, a, a really interesting career because you were a pretty big in music as well. At one point, <laughs> uh, you have an album. I had no idea until I was doing my homework under the name <laughs> Alice Gunn. Um, and you also That's did right. a tour with the White Stripes at one point. I did, that was definitely a high point of my life. I've been a musician all my life in some shape or form, initially as a classical musician, but then started playing rock bands. And yes, one day in my, um, when I was about 30, a band I was playing in, we were doing a gig at the 12 Bar in Denmark Street in Soho. And uh, the White Stripes turned up, much to our amazement, because this is a tiny venue that only takes, I don't know, 50 people or something like that. And uh, two weeks later, they gave us a call and said, do you want to come on tour with us in Europe? So I just had to say to my my dear editor, Chris Losh, thank you, Chris. Can I please just go on, go on tour for a couple of weeks? And he understood this was an important thing. And he kindly said yes. Yeah, well, Chris is a great guy. So if anyone was going to say yes, yeah. it, would be, it would be him. What's your uh, discipline then when it comes to music? What do you play or do you sing or what's your role? So I, I grew up in a musical family. I trained in the cello and singing and piano, um, taught myself to play the guitar kind of badly, but, you know, three chords of the truth and all that. Good enough to be in a rock band. And then my husband's uh, a music producer. You can see behind me the Gorillaz poster he played on that album and many of Damon Albarn's projects. So we have instruments everywhere. So you kind of just learn how to get by on quite a lot of different instruments. So I've played in all, I've even done some um, bad dance music, uh, which comes back to haunt me every now and again. <laughs> well, I'm going to look up this album if I possibly can, because I'm, I'm intrigued. Um, you have, uh, back to the kind of day job, a, a really crowded awards cabinet somewhere, or at least a groaning <laughs> shelf anyway. Um, how important are things like the IWSC Spirits Communicator, the Fortnum and Mason Drinks Writer of the Year Award? I mean, it's wonderful to win them. I think they're really good for giving particularly a platform to emerging writers and and communicators but equally you know I think it's important to remember that lots of great people don't even apply for these awards sometimes although the IWSC of course you don't apply for it but some of the other awards you do and there are lots of great people who just don't ever apply who will never get awards simply because they didn't enter who probably deserve an award as well so um, I think it's important not to read too much into it but uh, they're definitely a useful tool in kind of for shining a light on emerging talent in the industry, I think, definitely. The awards, I, I think, are uh, richly deserved. But I take your point that it's there are many brilliant people working who who don't necessarily get acknowledged in, in the same way. That That's absolutely true. You love a good story. I was intrigued to see reference to a piece that you did about Syria's only working winery. I, I used to work at the BBC Arabic service, which is one of the reasons that oh, okay. uh, I was intrigued about this. But I had no idea there was a working winery in Syria. Well, yes, um, I'm, I didn't actually go into Syria, but I went very near the border in Lebanon and met the brothers who run it because they also have a, a winery in Lebanon as well. It's a sort of really inspiring example of, of how, how wine or how drinks and the creation of them can mean more to people than simply just creating a drink. It's a kind of symbol of culture, community, and sometimes even resistance for people, you know, and, and, and that winery proves that almost more than any other, I think. 
Yeah, I, I really think it does. And, and uh, I, I think you weren't the only person not to go into Syria. It's still not a, <laughs> a, a an ideal place um, to be for, for anyone, uh, I think. One of your um, favourite gigs, uh, according to your own website, uh, another one that intrigues me, was interviewing uh, Professor Brian Cox about his champagne collection. Yeah, well, that's a that's a dream date, isn't it? <laughs> mm. um, I, I was doing um, something on Sunday brunch, uh, presenting some sakes and uh, Brian Cox was on the panel of celebs that day and we got chatting after and he said he loved champagne and particularly Runar, Don Runar and uh, and I said oh please 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 can I interview you about your love of champagne I love champagne too and uh, it took a while to come together and quite a lot of persistence on my part but eventually I knelt him down for lunch um, at Hicks in Farringdon, and we spent an amazing afternoon with his wine merchant, Bordeaux Index, um, who brought along some champagnes, and we had chicken and chips and talked about app space and wine, mm-hmm. and it was incredible. Yeah. <laughs> He's a lovely guy. I mm. bet he is. He comes across that way, and chicken and chips and Ruinar sounds very nice, especially yeah. from Ruinar. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. For 2010, yes, please. Uh, <laughs> okay, well, let's, let's get on to the cocktail edit then. What inspired mm. you to write this? Well, uh, for a long time, I sort of felt that the world had enough cocktail books already. But like a lot of books, the seed for it was so during lockdown, really, because I started posting recipes more regularly and saw that there was still a, a thirst amongst people for, for new ideas about really the same old drinks. Uh, the recipes that were always the most popular were the sort of easy twists on familiar classics. So, you know, the fig leaf old fashioned or the watermelon Negroni, um, the reverse martini, things like that. And I, and I thought, and that gave me half of the idea for the book. And, and the other idea was really that, you know, in the course of my career, I've sort of tried ev- making every recipe out there. And you, you know, you go on this journey, don't you, into the sort of really weird remote parts of cocktail culture or the wine world or whatever but then I think quite often you end up coming back to the classics again after a long time and really the drinks I make the most at home are things like the Gronies and Manhattans and and old fashions but just with little tweaks and twists and that's really how I cook as well you know I just do riffs on the kind of same 10 recipes a lot of the time and I thought I would really love a cocktail book that worked a bit like that and so that's the idea for the cocktail edit is really there's a backbone of 12 classic recipes that everyone will have heard of. And then I show how you can tweak them, maybe just change one ingredient, alter the balance, add a few herbs or something like that, and come up with all sorts of new recipes. In a way, in the process of doing that, you learn how drinks work. And really, I my hope is that by the, t- the time people get to the end of the book, they've understood the sort of DNA of these drinks so they could go away and come up with riffs of their own so really if you can throw away the book at the end of reading it then the book has done its job <laughs> oh i think i'd put it on the shelf rather than yeah i'll well, give it to a friend so. yeah don't throw it away yeah. give it to a friend <laughs> yeah think about your sustainability credentials yes, there exactly. yeah um so this is a, a project born of of those lockdowns so many dreadful things happened during the coronavirus pandemic but actually yeah one of the few positives was we really did get mixing didn't we we really did and i and you know, it wasn't just that we needed a, a stiff drink after everything that was going on. It was about having that moment in amongst a lot of craziness and unfamiliarity to sort of regroup and, and reset and, and have some time together as well, you know, even if that was over Zoom. So I think the sort of ritual of the cocktail 
um, was really important during that time, as well as the actual alcohol. And it gave us a connection with something that we were missing. Even if we couldn't have the people, uh, we could at least uh, have the the drink, I suppose. Cocktails can seem very complicated. And uh, when Mm. you see a bar with, you know, smoke rising from it, people doing extraordinary things behind the bar, it looks quite messy and difficult. Um, But you're aiming for simplicity here, aren't you? Yeah, well, I I think actually cocktails on the whole are actually quite simple. You don't need really expensive ingredients. That's something I strongly believe. In fact, a lot of the mainstream brands are often the best because they're the best for cocktails because they're the best team players because that's what they're designed to be. You don't need loads of expensive ingredients. You don't need tons. I mean, you could make most of the classics with about six bottles, but I've settled for 12 because I wanted just a bit more variety in there, plus a few more specialities in the book because we all have something weird at the back of the cupboard like you know benedictine dom or limoncello or something like that so i've included recipes that include some of those things as well um and you don't need loads of fancy tools either the stuff i use is stuff i've had for ages and it is very basic you can make a cocktail with like a teaspoon and a glass and a coffee strainer or something like that so um yeah they're they're super simple but there are lots of little details that you can attend to that will really elevate a drink from something quite ordinary to something really special. Oh, well, go on then. Mm. Uh, Inspire (laughs) us with that elevation. Elevate us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my number one tip is freeze your glassware. This will instantly improve pretty much any cocktail, but particularly the ones that are served up or without ice. So, you know, your martinis and, and your Manhattans. So, minimum, just put your glass in the freezer while you're mixing the drink for a minute or two. But ideally, just keep some glasses in the freezer all the time, just a couple of glasses, because they get really deep frozen then. And there's something really tantalising and beautiful about a drink that comes, you know, in an ice glazed coupe. So that would be my first tip. Very easy thing to do. And if you don't have room in your freezer, you know, finish up the fish fingers and make make room. (laughs) My second tip would be, you know, nail down a few really good but simple garnishes like learn how to do a really nice citrus twist because that can add a delicious fragrance not just alcoholic drinks but you know a glass of water with a a lovely orange or lemon or grapefruit twist or yuzu twist or something a bit more exotic is really lovely if you're using mint give it a slap between your palms before you put it in because that really amps up the scent it's those little tricks that improve a drink and also ice is my other obsession using lots of ice good quality ice, big cubes of ice, because it will work much harder in the drink and and you'll get a drink with much better definition, but also not too much dilution. Mm. My pet hate is uh, like a gin and tonic with two little melty ice cubes in it. Um, Oh, I can't stand it. Drives me mad. No. Yeah, same here. <laughs> My gin and tonic just needs to be cold, properly cold. And um, yeah, I, I, yes, pissy little ice cubes are, 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 are a bugbear <laughs> of, of mine as well. But I'm I'm kind of fascinated how often when I say that to people, people sort of suck their teeth and say, oh, that's very extravagant using lots of ice. But I mean, you know, we are talking about frozen water here. Of all the ingredients to use in a drink, it's probably the least extravagant one of all. But also there's almost, particularly amongst Brits, there seems to be like almost moral discomfort about using ice. And I, I looked into this. Why do, why do we feel so weird about ice? When you look at America, you go and stay in a hotel and there's an ice machine on every corridor in a hotel you know and you can trace it right back to sort of the Charles II the 
aristocrats were putting ice in their drinks and this was identified as a sign of the empire's sort of moral decline. So we, we've always had this sort of anxiety about using ice and the, and the Victorians also were shocked by having to use straws to drink icy drinks and they thought that was all terribly rude and stuff. So yeah, we don't make it easy for ourselves in Britain, but I'm trying to change our attitude to ice. <laughs> yeah, good for you. I mean, the Victorians, <laughs> frankly, the, what were the Victorians not shocked by, to be honest? Yeah. Uh, let's face it. But I know what you mean. You can you can wait 15 minutes for some ice in a hotel in Britain, whereas you just go into the uh, by the lift so in, in an American hotel, as you say, and you get masses of the stuff, which is um, fantastic. Yeah. One of the things I, I love about uh, being in, in the States and having drinks properly cold. Where are you on clear ice by the way rather than the ice that we tend to make at home that is not clear yeah well I mean obviously clear ice is is really stunning the reason ice is cloudy is not because of impurities in the water it's actually because of little air bubbles that are trapped in there so if you unfortunately you know purifying your water or boiling it so I've tried all of these things it doesn't make any difference really to whether your ice is clear or not it is possible to make crystal clear ice at home but it's incredibly labor intensive time consuming process uh not one i've got time for although there are lots of guys on um youtube who will show you how but uh if i want really clear ice there's a great little company in london called ice studio who nearly went bust during lockdown who i came across they nearly went bust because all the bars were closed so they started doing home deliveries and now they do that all the time and you can buy, you know, a pillowcase full of beautiful ice blocks or balls or ingots from them and uh, it's beautiful stuff and that's what I used to shoot my book. Every, everything mm. in the book is, you know, my glassware, it, the drinks are all made with real ingredients, you know, I've made the drinks, um, so this is real. You, it's very easy to make drinks that look like that. Yeah, that's great that you've done that. I assumed it was a professional photographer and, uh, you well, know, it's, someone... Oh, it's a professional photographer, yeah. sure. But, um, but, but yeah, sorry, yeah. I mean, I mean the kind of staging, uh, the, the people who kind of food stage and uh, and when you see um, elaborate photo shoots, quite a lot of things aren't actually what they purport to be. You know, they're not actually the food or the drink. Uh, they've got hairspray yeah. on them or they've got something that yeah. makes them look shiny or blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Uh, but this is, this is pretty authentic, uh, it, what you're picking cheering in the book then yeah it was really really important for me that they were the real deal so um so yeah everything is actually made really made with the real ingredients and real melting ice which means you know shooting drinks with real ice in them is uh is hard because they're changing before your very eyes so you have to be quick to get to get a drink you know when it's looking it's best but uh that's also what makes it Mm. And where are you Mm. on the size of ice cubes? Do you like big single uh, spheres or uh, Mm. are you quite happy with sort of smaller cubes? Well, my kind of favourite ice actually is the the sort of ice that I've got on the front of my book. Here we've got a picture of an old fashioned over a kind of completely one irregular hunk of ice, a sort of iceberg. Um, And that's my favourite sort of ice to use in a slow sipping drink like an old fashioned basically you just make a big block you know fill a a tupperware box with water freeze it overnight and then just hack it to bits i just get a knife and a mallet and chop it up and i love that irregularity of the ice and it makes every drink look a bit different and interesting um so yeah that's that's my favorite sort of ah, ice to good use. good excuse for a bit of destruction as well that, that must yeah, be quite good stress satisfying <laughs> yeah the book is built around a capsule collection of classics. Um, mm-hmm. Elaborate a little more. Yeah, so we've got, they're all drinks that 
people have heard of. And the, really, they're the sort of drinks also that you will find on most cocktail bars lists in some shape or form. So the drinks that we all know and love, the martini old fashioned, the daiquiri, the Negroni and so on. I've also got the gin sour in there, which is less of a classic and almost more like a genre of drinks because I think if there's one cocktail formula it's worth learning off by heart it's the gin sour or the sour which is four parts strong two parts sour one part sweet and if you have that formula under your belt you can busk a drink out of anything you know ingredients from the corner shop or the very finest you know gin and lemons from Amalfi and uh, you can also top it up with soda or champagne or tonic um you can throw herbs in the shake it there's all kinds of ways you can pull it around it's a bit like learning how to make a a stew and having that the formula for a stew down and then you can tweak it a million different ways so I've dedicated a whole chapter to the gin sour as well because I think that's a, a real cocktail survival kit that drink yeah, I need to get uh, into that, actually. My <laughs> my absolute favourite, the one I always go to, the one I always fancy, is Negroni. I've mm-hmm. loved Negroni for a couple of decades, yeah. since some early travels to, to Italy. Of course, it's become, in that time, enormously fashionable, hasn't it? Yeah, you were ahead of the curve. <laughs> mm. It's uh, <laughs> yeah, What definitely. makes it perfect for you? Because a Negroni can differ a bit, can't it? Well, the lovely thing about the Negroni is it's quite a, a bomb-proof formula isn't it I mean you can do roughly equal parts but you can tilt it in favor of one of any of the components really and it will still taste pretty good last night I had a boulevardier which of course is a Negroni made with uh, whiskey instead of gin which was really nice Um, and there's so many new vermouth and Campari style bitter liqueurs coming out now there are just loads of different ways to twist it and so there's a whole chapter about Negronis in my book as well Mm, that sounds mm. great. Uh, it's mm. really interesting to hear you talking about the classics often being the best, because I have been in a bar where I've had the most sensational Negroni. And I said, my God, what what are you using? And the barman or woman behind the bar has said Campari, Martini Rosso and Beefeater. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's it's a classic, but it's it, they, those, as you say, are, in spirits terms, not expensive ingredients. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I wrote a column about this for Club Analogy magazine recently after I was at Duke's in St. James's, you know, famous home of the martini, but they also do other great tricks too. And they and Alessandro made me a, a Manhattan and he used Martini Rosso, exactly. So we got talking about that. You know, once you, once you look under the surface, actually... A lot of bartenders are big advocates of classic brands. So yeah, Martini Rosso, as you say, Beef Eater Gin, all the classic gins, Beef Eater Tanqueray. What else is there? Havana, three-rolled for daiquiris and mojitos is fantastic as well. So uh, just because it's more expensive doesn't necessarily mean it's better for cocktails. Because sometimes the really expensive spirits, they may either be too woody or too fragile or too powerful to sort of blend into a cocktail or they just kind of want to be the star of the show in a way that's not helpful for all the other, you know, players in the drink. So, um, so yeah, yeah, don't underestimate that the classic affordable brands, they can be great. It's good to hear <clears throat> because mm. I've, uh, I've made uh, a Negroni, for example, with expensive ingredients before. And actually, mm-hmm. it's not greater than the sum of its parts. And of course, the whole yes. the, the idea of a cocktail, it absolutely must uh, transcend its ingredients, mustn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's absolutely right. It it is 
putting lots of expensive ingredients together in a Negroni does not necessarily make a better Negroni. A lot of it is about the preparation as well, isn't it? And and sometimes even the person who's making it for you. <laughs> mm, yeah, indeed. Um, mm. I, I, you mentioned the old fashioned as well. Are you a, a mm. whiskey old fashioned or a cognac old fashioned kind of girl? Oh, um, so I, uh, in terms of whiskey, I love rye whiskey, which is probably what the old fashioned would have been made with back in the day, uh, in the, 19th century but actually the old-fashioned as I discovered more recently used to be a a, another sort of family of drinks and Americans drank old fashions made with gin and brandy and you know it was just a style of drink so um there's a rum old-fashioned in my book actually rum makes a really good old-fashioned too so uh yeah Mm. any any good sipping spirit and then sort of uh, a reposado or nejo tequila can be really good too. If it's a good sipping spirit, it will probably make an amazing old fashioned. Yeah. Okay. Great to mm-hmm. know. Well, we won't talk too much more about what's in the book. Otherwise, we'll spoil it for those um, <laughs> who uh, are going out to buy it. But I, I have to, um, because you've been so uh, uh, good humoured about it. Um, there was yes. a, a rather marvellous moment um, on uh, Instagram where you <laughs> fessed up on its release. You, you basically flicked through the finished book and found to your horror that one of the recipes was wrong. And uh, the irony is it was a Negroni spagliato. And of course, uh, spagliato is mistaken or, or or bungled, I think, even in, in Italian, yeah. isn't it? So it, you couldn't have made it up, really. But you, you were incredible. You took it head on, basically. <laughs> oh, I mean, it was total agony. And I saw it and I looked and I looked and I looked and I thought, this cannot be true. I cannot have done this. And I checked and checked and checked and I had had done it. And there was a bit of despair initially. And then I thought, really, somebody famous once said the only way out is through, I think. And um, so I decided to take that approach. And yeah, the only upside was that it was actually a drink that was all about mistakes. Because of course, the Negroni Spagliato was invented when a bartender at the Bar Basso in Milan was making a Negroni, but supposedly reached for the Prosecco instead of the gin. Uh, But I ended up accidentally um, replacing the Campari for gin. So I'm sorry to all of the people who go and make it spagliato with um, gin, red vermouth and and Prosecco. It probably won't be undrinkable, but it definitely won't be as good as spagliato. So so I, I posted about this and I invited people to write to me with their own terrible typos and people had some very very funny things many of which are probably not repeatable because a lot of them involve <laughs> body parts or yeah. rude rude stuff but um yeah. it was very comforting to know that lots of people had had the same experience of waking up night after night going Ah, like they were mm. thinking about the mistake that they had made. <laughs> yeah, it was a great uh, conversation uh, on on your your feed uh, yeah. off the back of that. I really enjoyed it. It was one of the most delightful rabbit holes that you could go down. I think my own contribution was doing a radio live early in my radio reporting career and forgetting the word for confetti. And um, there is no other word. Uh, And it's a horrible moment when you think, what is that word? And I could not think. So I ended up just saying small squares of paper, uh, which is just absurd. But anyway, and and the the presenter handing back at the end, the presenter said, I think you were looking for confetti, David. And I I felt broken by that. But at least that wasn't printed, you know, thousands of times. (laughs) So uh, what's your go-to cocktail uh, when you're at home? It's going to be 
probably a martini. It's it's a hot contest between a martini and Negroni and uh, an old fashioned. Probably a martini. Yeah, and I like my martini five to one, frozen glass with a gin like Plymouth or Tanqueray or maybe Heppel, the the craft gin Heppel from Northumbria, all very nice. Noirly Pratt, and I like an olive and a twist, although squeeze the twist and then throw it away. But I asked for that in a bar just the other day, and the guy looked at me like I'd asked for a dead rat in my martini. Some people find this really shocking that I like both. But um, yeah. I like the citrus and the savoury combination in my martini. Mm, and yeah. you're definitely gin, not vodka. Well, actually, I've been getting... I have had a few vodkatinis recently. I definitely think that vodka is due... A bit of a well, I mean, it, it still sells big volumes, but in in sort of cool terms, it's not very cool at the moment. But I I feel there's a resurgence coming back as people get a bit um weary of all of the novelty gins that are out there, and you know maybe people are starting to crave a bit more focus and sort of a more sort of like minimalist kind of flavour profile again, like really good quality ingredients and vodkas with a definite distinctive flavour, but something just. Yeah, with a bit more focus, I think. So I, mm. I used to say absolutely not, no vodkatinis, but I've changed my tune more recently. <laughs> yeah, well, I look forward to the uh, dead rat martini. That sounds, uh, <laughs> sounds great. Um, you've been writing about drinks for the best part of 20 years. Um, big question this, but what's changed in that time? Uh, what are the really big shifts or trends that you've you've seen while you've been writing about drinks? One of them is what we were talking about earlier on about people drinking much more widely. And I think that's been really exciting. You Also, you're seeing a lot more crossover between different categories with different categories of drink, drawing inspiration from each other. I just did a column for the FT about co-ferment wines, which are, you know, where you've got grapes fermented with things like hops or herbs. And that's really drawing inspiration from beer and the beer and cider industry, really. I think people are a lot more comfortable drinking drinks that don't really fall into a clear category you know they're less anxious about that and sort of more experimental and so we're seeing a lot more hybrid styles of drink which is really interesting the the emergence of the no low category has been very interesting to report on from journalistic point of view not always the nicest to taste but i think now we're seeing some some really quite sophisticated and interesting contenders coming through and i've i've I'm going to be a judge for the inaugural World Alcohol Free Awards in February, which I think will be really interesting and, you know, a great platform for the best examples. Because um, I think having more non-alc drinks is is better for everyone. You know, greater choice in that category is better for everyone, regardless of whether they drink or, or not. And I think a lot of bartenders now see, you know, see it as a gauntlet thrown down to them to make good drinks without alcohol. And it's a real test of their creativity. So I think that's great too. Yeah, and mm. um, the way they have evolved, some of them uh, are still unremarkable. Others are very, very clever indeed. Um, mm. I mean, I was uh, talking to Philip Schofield and, and Holly Willoughby on this morning about <laughs> doing dry January and doing no and low last January. Yeah. And Philip asked the perfectly legitimate question, there is no duty to pay on these things because they don't have alcohol in. Why are they so damn expensive? Yeah. And I, I mm. was on the spot and I didn't really know the answer to that. So I hazarded a guess that it was probably the cost of innovation and the cost of ingredients. Would you yeah. kind of concur with that? Uh, not too long ago, I was sent something to taste that shall remain nameless that was launching in Harrods. Uh, but it was a kind of 
pretend wine and I actually called them out for the price because I thought they were taking a piss quite frankly with the price that they were, they were charging the price of a champagne for a fizzy grape juice and I just really didn't think it was warranted I think sometimes it's just a case of marketing and like reassuringly expensive you know that kind of idea yeah I, th- I think a lot of consumers question this too and it's something that people should the brands must be able to answer hopefully the prices will come down as well as you know volumes increase and and some of the some of the imposters are weeded out i think (laughs) yeah i think let's Mm. hope so because yes some of them are when you take out the uh the the duty element the amount of tax that isn't there um they're pretty uh, pretty outrageous but let's let's see another sort of bigger question you're a, a very prominent woman in what was once, um, like a lot of fields, uh, more of a man's world. These days, when I think of the most prominent people writing about drinks, particularly wine, which is more my speciality, mm. you, Jancis, Victoria Moore, Jane McWitty, Fiona Beckett, the, the big names, so many of them are female. Am I taking a rose-tinted view in saying that the world <laughs> of drinks writing is it has made some real progress? Or uh, yeah, is that just typically a man looking at another uh, another world? I now you pointed out I I am thinking well yes there are a lot of women in in wine writing but I know it sounds extraordinary to say but I haven't really thought about that I've so often been in like male dominated industries uh, you know like well or you know being in say rock bands for example just surrounded by guys all the time uh, my family is sort of all men apart from my mum obviously. <laughs> So, so I suppose my kind of default scenario is always being in the minority gender wise. But I think we're seeing a lot more women in traditionally sort of male dominated categories being more visible. I think that's the important thing to say is a lot of these women have always been the winemakers and the whiskey makers and the brewers, but for various reasons have not always been the ones push forward to comment or push themselves forward to comment or be in the spotlight. And I I think a lot of it is actually about visibility and being acknowledged rather than being absent, if if that makes sense. Um, and, And that's really exciting, really exciting to see. Yeah, a, mm. a really good point in what's quite a, as I said, quite a, a big question to to chuck at you. Here's a simpler question. Mm. Um, this book is now on the shelves. You have a, mm. a busy writing schedule with your various uh, commitments that I mentioned. Um, you have a husband, two children, a dog, I think. Correct. Um, Correct. Uh, how do you find the time to do this? And is there another book in the offing? Oh, God, how do I find the time? I'm not going <laughs> to... I'm not going to impart any great wisdom about that. I think being incredibly organised, rather boringly. Um, I'm not. I'm not someone who writes through the night. That's something I definitely can't do. So it has to be about getting up and getting it done in the morning. And if it's not working, something I'm quite bad at, but I'm trying to get better at is if it's not working, step away from the desk and go and do something else and come back. You know, rather than flog a dead horse or something. I would like to get better at doing running running as well I find is really good for getting in a a good headspace for for work and particularly writing too so I I run a lot and another book Mm. anything in the pipeline nothing nothing concrete at the moment right but hopefully watch this space okay so (laughs) yes that suggests to me possibly something early stage not going to tell you so uh, we'll leave we'll leave that one (laughs) that's fair enough very good point about the stepping away the number of times i've got completely stuck with the top or the end of a piece 
And mm. uh, and actually, because I find that, I think most writers probably do, the most difficult part. And mm-hmm. actually stepping away really helps, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, once you've got that kind of opener, often it, it flows from there. And uh, don't you find, you you know, when you're interviewing someone, you'll be talking away with them and then they'll suddenly say something and you'll go, ah, oh, yes, that's it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. I can see the pull quote or I can see the opener and then it goes ding, 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 ding and sort of flows from there. So that that's always what you're looking for, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Mm. Um, just a final question then. Um, mm. If you were stuck on a desert island, yeah. what would your desert island drink be? And in your case, it could easily be a champagne or a, a, a wine or it uh, it could, I suppose, just as easily be a, a, a cocktail or, or a spirit. So, But you can only have one, I'm afraid. So what would it be? Have I got a refrigeration and ice on this desert island? You do, yes. Yeah. Okay, because <laughs> otherwise that would quite limit my options, wouldn't it? So I'm really, really torn about this and I get asked this a lot, but either it would be a martini as per the martini. I just specified, oh, I've got to say it would be a glass of champagne. There really isn't a moment in the 24 hours of every day that I would not except a glass of champagne. So am I allowed to say that as the author of the cocktail edit, that I actually have a glass of champagne? You definitely are. Uh, a, a glass of champagne, <laughs> Thank frankly, you. is is always going to be uh, welcome. Perhaps it can be a Dom Ruinar 2010. Uh, yeah, or Professor... maybe Case of Cristal, perhaps. Oh, yeah, OK. Yeah, well, <laughs> Professor Brian Cox could perhaps visit you uh, on a on a <laughs> boat, in a rowing boat or something on the desert island. Or from a helicopter, drop down from a helicopter with a Case of Cristal. That'd be good. Well, that would be great, although it'd be quite handy <laughs> to have the helicopter to, to escape, I suppose. Anyway, this is another <laughs> conversation. Um, Alice, it's a great um, uh, pleasure chatting to you the book's a great idea the cocktail edits really really uh, excellent idea as i say right in tune with the time so a uh, good luck with it and thanks ever so much for joining us on the drinking hour thank you david it's been a pleasure the drinking hour on food fm you're listening to the drinking hour with david kermode in association with the international wine and spirit competition using the best in the world to judge the best in the world well if the cocktail edit Uh, from Alice has inspired you. I'm sure it has. Uh, Then let's round off, as always, with some medal winners from the IWSC, some spirits and a vermouth as well. Alice is actually a keeper of the Quake, whiskey's highest honour. So let's start there. Seaweed and irons and digging and fire. Ten-year-old Isla, single malt Scotch whiskey. Uh, This from... um, Atom Brands. Uh, it won a gold medal, a whopping 98 points. The esteemed judging panel included Richard Patterson OBE, uh, Joel Harrison, a friend of this programme, of course, Colin Hampton-White, Jim Beveridge and uh, Deval Gandhi. Uh, they said this, ripe fruits throughout, apple, red berries, peaches and plum with cinnamon cranberry crumble. Quite hard to say. A hint of old leather enhances this soft, easy drinking, smoke scented, spicy dram. Light and lovely. Not sure you actually want to mix with that, just savour it, but it's up to you, of course. Here's a silver medal winner, which also won a silver in the whiskey highball judging process as well. Canadian Club Whiskey, 12 year old classic Canadian whiskey. The judges, including Dawn Davis, MW of uh, the Whiskey Exchange, said this. Rich Christmas cake, dark chocolate and sweet caramel on the nose. Beautifully balanced on the palate with a delightful integration of mouth coating, texture and sweetness. Here's something a little different, uh, also from Scotland. Uh, Tayport Distillery, 1992 Raspberry Liqueur. Scotland is, of course, 
famous for the quality of its raspberries um, in the season. Uh, this uh, particular uh, liqueur won a gold medal with 95 points. The judges describing it as a shining example with great balance and poise. It displays real raspberry flavours and subtle tartness that's delicately balanced with the sweetness of berry jam on a light and subtle finish. Next, something very different, a gold medal winning Baiju from China. Uh, Jinhu uh, Liqueur Co, 18 years Baiju, uh, in a really beautiful red ceramic bottle, work of art in itself. Uh, this won 95 points. The judges said this, a refined nose with a soft herbal edge opens up to reveal roasted pineapple, perfumed florals and fresh melon notes. The palate delivers a wonderful texture with an abundance of cereal, light caramel and dark chocolate notes peeking through. Superb, they said. Uh, the panel included Anthony Moss, MW. If you want to know more about Baiju, uh, then do go back and listen to the Asian Spirits episode about a year ago in which we featured Anthony and talked about Baiju. Finally, here's a gold medal winning vermouth, which might well make a winning ingredient in your dream Negroni. Who knows? Villa Massa Vermouth Giardino Tradizionale Non-Vintage. The judging panel, which included Ivan Dixon and also Shannon T. Bay, a previous guest here on The Drinking Hour, uh, talking cocktails uh, back in the summer. Uh, they said this, lifted and expressive Italian nose with wormwood and rhubarb. Pleasant mouthfeel with a good definition of flavour and intensity. Bitter herbs come through perfectly. Beautiful complexity and very true to style. Long finish, they said. And that is it. Time for my own short finish. Uh, thank you to you for listening. And thanks also uh, to Alice Lascelles for a really uh, lovely, uh, fun chat. We're now into Series 8. Do join us next time for a special edition, the first of two, focused on the most famous wine region of them all, Bordeaux. Uh, that's next time and the time after. Uh, you can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram and Twitter. And I am Mr. Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. But for now, it's goodbye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition. Using the best in the world, to judge the best in the world.